Have you ever wondered why the good guys win in movies or stories? Well, have you ever seen a story where the bad guy wins? If the bad guy wins, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't really make sense. Like, just imagine if Drago had knocked out Rocky out cold. That was it. That may be a little earlier for some of y'all. I'm still a huge Rocky fan, but um, what if, just imagine Smog the Dragon having some barbecued Hobbit? <laughs> or what if Katniss never volunteered? What if Private Ryan was never saved? Or what if Indiana Jones got squashed by the rock rolling after him? That would be pretty anticlimactic, wouldn't it? That wouldn't make much sense. It'd feel like there was no purpose to the story or lesson to be learned. What's the point? And that's really where we left the, the prophet Habakkuk last week. So to review, Habakkuk first asks the Lord... Why do you not judge the sin of Judah? But God affirms his justice by saying that he is raising up the Babylonians to judge Judah. Which then leads Habakkuk to ask another question. He's questioning God's holiness. He asks, how can you use the more wicked nation of Babylon to judge the less wicked nation of Judah? On page 737 in the Bible, in the chair back in front of you, that's where we'll be finding ourselves today. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 13, it says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He questions God's holiness and character. And then again in verse 17 of chapter 1, he says, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? But after asking, Habakkuk then responds in faith by going up to his watch post and waiting for the Lord's answer. And that's where we have left the prophet. Asking, waiting, the bad guys all around him, sin abounding. What is the Lord going to do? What is the lesson to be learned? And what we and Habakkuk will learn from today's passage is that we should have faith in God because he will destroy the wicked. Let's start our trek through this second chapter in verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. And again, just like in chapter 1, the Lord out of his faithfulness to his covenant responds to Habakkuk. God responds to Habakkuk. So what's this vision that he's talking about? 
What's this grand vision that's going to happen? Well, it's when God actually shows up on the scene in chapter 3 that we'll cover next week. So like in the book of Job, a lot of the ladies just went through the whole book of Job on the Wednesday night study. If you remember or if you've ever studied the book of Job, at the end, God shows up and speaks through the whirlwind, right? And scholars call that a theophany. And that's what happens in chapter 3. God shows up to Habakkuk. The answer to the wickedness in chapter 1 will come in chapter 3. Justice will be served in chapter 3. And God says, write it down. Write it big. Put it on a poster in your front yard. But it's not here yet. Because we're still in chapter 2. And what does he say in verse 3? For, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. It's kind of like Gandalf when he reminds Frodo, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Neither is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. The, Lord, the Lord's never late. It seems, if it seems late, just wait for it. It will not delay in the right timing. God's justice to Babylon for the destruction of Judah will come. For Habakkuk, the Lord is telling him, wait at the watch post. Stand your ground. I work in my own timing. My timing is always perfect. Wait for me. Isn't that a word for today? Wait on the Lord's timing, because that is the perfect timing. He continues in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Whose soul, whose puffed up soul is God talking about here? Well, he's referring back to Babylon. So here in this verse, God is contrasting the arrogance of Babylon with the faith of the righteous. So this incredibly important verse in the Bible is the missing piece of the puzzle for the restoration of God's people to himself. You see, the separation occurred in the garden, right? And that happened because of Adam and Eve's sin. So the question facing humanity from then on is, how will restoration occur? And God tells us, by becoming righteous, by becoming like God, to stand in right standing with God. So how, that, that begs the question, how does then one become righteous? How does that happen? And he tells us here. He says, by faith. Just recall, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. God equips Moses with signs, with the staff and the leprosy in his hand, if you remember. He equips him with those signs so that the people will believe. That's Exodus 4. And the Israelites believed 
the Lord after crossing the Red Sea in Exodus 14. You may even recall the people of Nineveh believed in God after Jonah preached to them in Jonah 3.5. And God even says in Habakkuk 1 that he would not believe if told. Says, I'm going to bring about something that you would not believe if told. And while Habakkuk did not understand how God could use this more wicked nation to judge Judah, he shows faith in God by going up to his watch post and waiting for the Lord's answer. He didn't believe the judgment. He didn't understand it. He didn't grasp it. It didn't make sense. But he shows faith in God by seeking God's answer. Even though he didn't understand the message, he trusted in the Lord. The righteous shall live by his faith. This verse is a monumental verse in the New Testament. It's actually the thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 to 17. If y'all remember that series like 20 years ago. It was actually like three. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16 says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk here. He then goes on in the book of Romans, proving that righteousness does not come through human effort, through the law, or through the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And again, Paul actually quotes Habakkuk in Galatians. In Galatians 3, actually, to show the true nature of Abraham's justification. I've already mentioned that from Genesis 15, 6. Galatians 3, 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Paul keeps repeating this over and over again. This is a huge cornerstone to theology. And then finally, our last quotation in the New Testament of this verse comes from Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews uses this verse mixed with some others to encourage the congregations that he's writing to, to endure through suffering. In Hebrews 10, 37-38, he says, For yet a little while, and the, and the coming one will come and not delay. Again, that's kind of playing off the words we saw in Habakkuk. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God's people are righteous through faith. And then what Habakkuk's doing here, he, he shows us it's not just a one-time mental decision. You may have a little number or a letter above the word faith in verse 4. Follow that down to the bottom of the page or the margin in your Bible. You may find the word faithfulness. Habakkuk is communicating that it is by faith that we are made right, but it is also an enduring faithfulness. It's a continuation of faith. 
See, this is the problem with Israel and Judah. As many times the Old Testament shows us that the righteous people actually believed God, there are even more instances where Israel did not believe God. 2 Kings 17 shows us Israel and Judah's present predicament, predicament that Habakkuk is witnessing. 2 Kings is kind of like the overall, it's kind of from a 35,000 foot view of what's happening here during the same time of Habakkuk. And ultimately, it was unbelief that led to their captivity. It's kind of a long passage, but, but track with me and look for how they did not believe. 2 Kings 17. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried off the Israelites away to Assyria. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. Yet look at the Lord's patience here. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Habakkuk is in that group that he's talking about, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their, their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. If you recall, there's only one calf in Exodus when they were first led out of Egypt, now it's two. It shows that they are progressing in their sin. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So that's the question for us. What about Judah? Will they remain faithful? What's going to happen with Judah? And verse 19 says, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. That's what God is using Babylon to do here. He's using Babylon to judge his people because of their wickedness. Judah and Israel, they did not live by their faith. And Judah is being brought under judgment because they did not believe God. But even in the middle of Babylon's judgment, God is showing him back that he is still faithful because Babylon will not have the final say. And he does this by he's, he's kind of giving five woes. 
for the rest of the chapter. He shows five different ways how Babylon will be destroyed. That's question, Habakkuk's question thus far is, will Babylon ultimately win? Will the wicked win? And God says five times throughout the rest of the chapter, five times, no, they will be destroyed. And this will show us that we should trust God because he will destroy the wicked. So let's start again with verse five. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own, as his own, all peoples. So wine here is, is a depiction of the lavishness of Babylon and, and the lavishness and the pride and the arrogance of the wicked. And it's really kind of a symbol of worldliness here in this passage. And on this side of eternity, there's always going to be Babylon. The wicked are always going to be here on this side of eternity. Because think about it, Assyria came before Babylon, Medo-Persia came next, the Greeks came after then, and then the Romans. The wicked will always be here. But to echo Habakkuk's question from chapter 1, verse 17, will this keep going on forever? Will the wicked have the final say? That's his question. And God is answering this question in verse 6. In verse 6 he says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? So who's these? What's, what's he talking about with these? It's referring back to all the nations that Babylon had gathered for themselves. The nations and the peoples and the slaves that they took for themselves. So the Lord kind of uses uh, these captives and these slaves, these nations, as like a kind of chorus to pronounce the woes upon the wicked for the rest of the chapter. So what, are these, what does the nation say? What do these people say, and they say, whoa. What in the world does that mean? Whoa. Whoa, like, oh my goodness. Whoa, like, ooh, whoa. I don't like that. Well, this is a biblical word. It's kind of lost on us in today's translation, but what it means is if someone is being destroyed it's the very words that would escape their mouths as they're being destroyed. It's like a depiction of, whoa, whoa, I'm being destroyed. And that's kind of what they would be saying at that point. And so what they're saying is ultimate destruction upon the wicked. Woe to the wicked. And so our first woe is the wicked will be destroyed by stealing. Let's continue reading. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. So the nations, there's picture, picture this in your minds. The nations are rising up and they're saying, destruction upon the wicked who steals for personal gain and loads himself up with the loyalty of men. That's what they're saying. Woe to them. 
and how does, how does stealing, how is that their destruction? Because what you'll see here in these five woes is that you reap what you sow. So if, if Babylon is sowing destruction, if, they, if Babylon is sowing thievery, they're going to reap thievery. What goes around comes around. The wicked will be destroyed by stealing. It's just a natural response. Look, keep reading here. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. So what they're saying is whoever they steal from will in turn steal from them. You, Babylon, will become the very spoil that you took in the first place. Let's keep reading. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The wicked will be destroyed because the people they plundered will eventually rise up and overthrow them. Babylon was overthrown by Medo-Persia and Medo-Persia was overthrown by the Greeks and the Greeks were overthrown by the Romans and so on and so on and so on. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. So the question is, will the wicked win? God is giving Habakkuk an unequivocal no. No, the wicked will not win. This will not last forever. So we should have faith in God because the wicked will be destroyed. Our woe number two, our second woe. The wicked will destroy his own house through his greed. So he was, he was plundering for himself and now that, that, that wickedness is gonna overthrow into his own, or it's gonna overflow into his own house. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. So the chorus of the nations continues by saying, utter destruction be upon the wicked who gains for his own family through evil means. So we go from personal, individual impact to now familial impact. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. So Babylon, by, by killing many people, Babylon has in turn forfeited their own life. So will the wicked win? No. They will be destroyed. Their wickedness will bring down their house of shame. And then he goes into an illustration here. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So basically what he's saying is the same materials that you build your house with will one day catch up to you. If you build your house with straw, it will crumble. If you build your house through evil means, it will be destroyed. So will the wicked win? No. God wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, the wicked will not win. So we should have faith in God because the wicked will be destroyed. Our third woe, the wicked will be destroyed by his sinful endeavors. Verse 12, 
Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. That's what he's saying. What the chorus is saying is destruction be upon the person who gains through evil means, not just for himself or his household, but now it's to the whole city. Now it's to the whole city. Verse 13, behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? So what's he saying here? Ultimately, the nations that are enslaved by the wicked, so like this chorus, they'll just be laboring to build up this empire. All they're doing is just building up the kindling for the fire that is to come. They're building up an empire that will one day be destroyed. All they're doing is collecting firewood for the bonfire of their destruction. Now, up until this point, we have been harping on the destruction of the wicked, right? Which is neat and all if we are going for a blank slate. If all we're doing is just trying to get to neutral, then then great. But that's not who God is. That's not what God is interested in. Yes, the wicked will be destroyed, but why is that good? Why, if they're destroyed, then what happens? Who is ultimately going to win? Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So y'all, will the wicked win? No. Who's going to win according to this text? Thank you. <laughs> God is the ultimate winner. Righteousness will prevail. Truth will be brought forth. All wrongs will be made right. Why? Because God, the righteous one, will have the final say. And this isn't a victory where you're neck and neck, and that comes down to the wire, and your best guy, there's three seconds left on the clock, and your best guy gets the ball, and he shoots a last-second three-pointer. That's not what this victory is. This is demolishing. This is a profound victory. This is God's glory like water in the sea. It's like Babylon is the tiniest little piece of grain of sand being dropped in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That's how overwhelming this victory is. It's not even close. The wicked will be so overwhelmed by God's glory that it's like it never even had power. God's glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's our hope. That's a promise. We should have faith in God because the wicked will be destroyed and God's glory will cover the whole earth. Our fourth woe. The wicked will be destroyed by causing his neighbors to sin. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. 
the wicked, what do they do? This, they, they drag down their neighbors ultimately for their own selfish gain. So what, what happens if you treat your friends and neighbors poorly? What happens if you treat your friends and neighbors like this? What goes around comes around. You're not going to have any friends. You're not going to have anybody in your corner. You're going to eventually be destroyed. When you come upon hard times, there's no, not going to be a single person in your corner. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. So whatever gain the wicked has gained in this world, all the glory that they gain will be met by a right hook from Yahweh. And they will be knocked out cold in their destruction. The wicked will not have the final say. God, the Holy One, will have the final say. It's like if I went toe-to-toe with a great fighter, like someone like Mike Tyson or someone like that. I have no idea how to box. I've never boxed before, but we all know how it's going to end. He's actually a lefty, and he's going he's gonna to hit me with his left hand, and I'm going to be there laying on the ground out cold. Verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What he's saying is he's, he's recounting their past victories and he's, what he's saying is what he's been saying the past few woes. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. The violence the wicked brings to those around them will be met with violence to themselves. So again, I'm going to ask you, will the wicked win? No. We should have faith in God because the wicked will be destroyed. Our last woe, our fifth one. The wicked will be destroyed by his idolatry. Verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? What he's saying is utter destruction to the wicked for their idols. This is ironic. This is just a complete picture of irony. These all-powerful people make their own idols. They worship their idols. In chapter 1, Habakkuk says that their own might is their God. They worship themselves ultimately. Are they going to save themselves when the Lord comes reckoning? No. No. Utter destruction comes upon those that worship these idols. This idol will not teach. It will only serve as fuel for the wicked's destruction. That's all it's going to be good for. 
And our last verse, what is the Lord doing in all this? When the wicked go after idols, what's the Lord doing? Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is sitting on the throne worthy of worship. He is worthy of all praise because the wicked will ultimately be destroyed. So right now, God is using Babylon to discipline his children. But Babylon will not have the final say. God will have the final say. He is the one that's sitting on the throne and rule and reign over the earth. And he is worthy of worship. So at this point in the book of Habakkuk, Judah is already starting to be taken from their homes. And will be in exile for, according, you know, they have no idea how long they're going to be in exile. Their family members have been slaughtered and they're going to a foreign land. For us, it's like we're being shipped off to Canada or California. Can you imagine how miserable that would be? But then they hear these words from Yahweh. Babylon will not have the final say. Babylon will be destroyed. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So in conclusion, we here find ourselves in another exile. Our kingdom is here, but not yet. We are in a foreign land. We are aliens in a difficult world. And again, friend, hear these words. The wicked will not have the final say. The wicked of this world will not win. So friend, Christian, where is our faith? Our faith is in the conqueror of the wicked. Our faith is in the one who was afflicted for our wickedness. Our faith is in the one who gathers nations to himself, not for selfish, sinful gain, for a, for a temporary empire, for an everlasting one, for his glory and our good. Our faith is in the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. We worship a God who is sitting on his throne in victory. The enemy has been defeated and all, his, all the enemy's followers are doomed to die. There, Christian, hear me. There is no power of hell over you. The enemy has been defeated and all his followers are doomed to die. The risen king, he rules and reigns over you. Look at how God uses at that time the most powerful force known to man, the Babylonians. And he even uses them to bring glory to himself by disciplining his children. That's how powerful God is. Trust him. 
Know that the sin you are struggling with and the forces of darkness all around you will not have the final say. The enemy has been defeated by Christ on the cross. So what's our response? We live by faith in that victory. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not worth comparing because we know God wins. Knowing that, that encourages us to live by faith. So for those who are in Christ, he became sin for us so that we might become his righteousness through faith in him. For those who are outside of Christ, who do not have faith in Christ, the truth of the matter is, if you haven't caught on by now, the wicked will be destroyed. If you are not in Christ, then you are against Christ. So the only thing left for you is destruction. For those who are outside of Christ, who do not have faith in Christ, you will be destroyed on judgment day. But every single person in this room who now lives by faith in Christ, we were once the wicked. That was against God. We were once followers of Satan, Ephesians says. But God saved his enemies and now calls us children. He provided a way of salvation from the destruction that we deserve as the wicked. How did he do this? By sending his son, Jesus, to take that punishment. If you repent of your wickedness and ask Jesus to take your sin and the judgment for your sin, you will be saved from the wrath to come. That's the hope of the gospel. I urge you, if you are not, if you do not have your faith in Christ, come talk to an elder after the service. They will love nothing more than to counsel you, to tell you this news I just told you, that someone has stepped in in your place to take the punishment for the wickedness that you earned. And his name is Jesus. Wickedness is either dealt with in Christ or on judgment day. Because in the end, God wins. Have faith, Christian. Live by faith in this God who wins.